Hi, Molly and the Ray. This is Bill Pitkin. I can't believe it's been six months or whatever since we held the Housing Justice LA Summit. It was great to work with you all on that and uh, really just one of the highlights I've had in a number of years. What a great event and uh, congrats on this podcast, uh, which has taken that event and made it real. I've just loved hearing from a lot of the speakers we had, the great voices, the art and music and poetry, bringing that to the podcast uh, has been wonderful. But what I've really loved so much is, even though I know both of you and I've known you for a while, uh, really enjoyed how you both have really brought your full selves to the podcast and that's something we were striving for with the event, and it's just been wonderful to hear that, to witness it, participate with it in the podcast, and all of the conversations you've had and the way you've gone about it. I just really appreciate it and congratulate you on, on this amazing journey, which has been obviously more important than ever. Uh, I don't think we anticipated in January how meaningful the housing justice conversation would be. And so the voice that you're bringing to it, the people that you're bringing to the podcast uh, are bringing to our reality is so needed. So thanks again. Kudos. Love you both. Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am Lorraine Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. We did it, Lorraine and Bill. Woohoo! 12 podcast episodes exploring housing, justice, homelessness, racial equity in LA. And we started this work with the Housing Justice Summit in January. We persevered through COVID-19, the pandemic, then the lynching of George Floyd in May, numerous other police killings, and the amazing uprising that followed and continues. We did this as working moms with many other demands on our time, which means we did this imperfectly, but with a lot of heart. We continue how imperfect it is by now being in my backyard where we are in here in my backyard. We have an ice cream truck going by. We have, I think, a super spreader party across the street. So we'll see how the sound quality is today. Yes, we did it. We did it with constantly reaching out to folks and asking them how would they like to participate in this podcast. We did it with uh, finding out how to make our schedules fit together. We did it with uh, two phones, one on the ear and one in the mouth. We did it <laughs> uh, through Bill's celebratory uh, moments of having a baby. We did it throughout all of this in the name of wanting to give answers and give solutions and create these collaborative relationships that bring together folks who are so far from understanding what the struggle of homelessness puts upon those who are working as service providers and those who are experiencing homelessness. We did it. We did it. And you are cracking me up 
because it has been a wild ride um, with some, you know, particularly I think once the pandemic hit and we couldn't interview people in person and we had Zooms with so many different phones recording in so many different places and really crazy audio quality, but we kept at it. The world has changed a lot since January, and we want to take this last episode to look back and look forward. We started this work with an event in person, the Housing Justice Summit, back in January. It's hard to imagine now getting together 175 people in a room, but thankfully we did it before the pandemic hit. And this podcast was an outgrowth of that event. When you look back on the summit, what do you take away from that event? What sticks out to me the most is the way that the summit was brought together. Uh, I think about when I had that phone call and I said, I want to do more where there's more opportunities for people with lived experience. And I remember you saying, let's meet up. Let's talk. The term reframing solutions is what is stuck with me throughout this time. So I've moved from a place of fighting to standing because the fight has taken so much out of me that I was like, it's time to just stand. And and what I've been able to experience and witness by being able to open up opportunities for people with lived experience is just what I asked for when I sat down and had that conversation. It was like, Molly, I want for people with lived experience to have greater opportunities. And it's opened up where I get to provide this consulting with organizations who are providing housing services. And I'm asking them, how are we bringing in the voices of those that are experiencing homelessness in the way that we're reshaping the way their programs and services are showing up? And it's much more broader than what I thought could be a solution. And and what you said to me was, Lorraine, you can't do everything and just hold on. And the summit came about, and now the podcast. So it's beautiful. Yeah, when I think back to January, that was a really moving event for me to be a part of. And it was really inspirational for me to actually watch you at that event. Because I think part of what happened with the Housing Justice Summit is you really brought your whole self to the event. You broke into rap during the event. You shared some verses with us. You know, you shared your personal story And there were so many surprises during the day and the day was so much more magical because of the way you showed up in that space. And I just have to like own for a minute. I'm often terrified to show up in the way that you showed up. Um, I was thinking back to our first episode of this podcast and just telling my personal story. And I rarely do that. Like I'm often very sort of terrified to tell my personal story and, you know, how people are going to interpret it and what are they going to think? And, you know, will my voice start cracking um, if I try and tell this story that's really emotional for me? So for me, it was really big to watch you at the Housing Justice Summit and see you do that in this really powerful way. And the other thing that came up for me around that event, you know, is I was on the LASA, had the ad hoc committee on black people experiencing homelessness, um, which was such an eye-opening process to be a part of and very eye-opening as a white woman to be a part of that process. And when we started that ad hoc committee, people would get really emotional 
during those meetings. And I know you were in the audience at some of those and saw, you know, the way those meetings went down. And it was really hard for me when people would raise their voices, people would sob. And I think part of what was happening is one, it's like, that's righteous. You know, that is like the righteous anger and trauma and hurt um, from how painful uh, white supremacy is in this country. But the other thing that I think was happening is I think the way we set up those meetings was really re-traumatizing. And so that was the other part of the Housing Justice Summit for me, is I feel like by creating a space that's safe for people to bring their whole selves and their authentic selves to the space, it doesn't re-traumatize people. And that's a lot of the way I think I'm learning that white supremacy shows up in our work is we create these very unsafe spaces. We create these sanitized spaces where you're not supposed to talk about race and you're not supposed to talk about trauma and you're not supposed to talk about your family or your personal experience. And that can be so re-traumatizing. So to you know get to do the summit and take on these really hard topics, but I hope do it in a way that didn't re-traumatize people was a very powerful experience that I'm still trying to figure out how do I keep doing that in my work? Well, um, keep the lived experience close. Keep that invitation for their ideas to show up and providing spaces for what it looks like to co-create with them. And, you know, it was so funny when you just said as a white woman, because in my mind, when I have these experiences of remembering moments with Molly, it's never connected to Molly's a white woman. And, I think it's because of how you were able to share with me when I first initially asked, like, Molly, why are you a part of this work? What makes you keep showing up in this part of this work, in this way where you're standing for solutions? You were very candid and you shared with me your story. And um, you even did a call and response at the summit. And I remember before you were like, no, I'm not doing that. But you did it without any nudging. It was just like, look at her. She's doing that. (laughs) So uh, I, too, see how you are taking a look at how privilege shows up and you're creating spaces for others. And the heart that allows for you to continue to be a part of this work um, is one that has taken me from having an experience where I every time I leave from you I'm like oh my goodness this white woman didn't get it I never have left from you in in that way and I appreciate that (laughs) yeah I've been working on honesty like how do I show up in my work in an honest way and one of the ways that's manifesting in the pandemic is that I don't put on a virtual background so I'm working out of my garage it's very clearly a garage. (laughs) It does not look like a nice office. And I've been like, you know what? I'm just going to be honest. Like, this is what work looks like right now. And it's not pretty. And I'm not in a suit. And I'm not in, you know, fluorescent lights. Like, I'm hanging out in a garage. And this is my gift to you, everybody. This is what it looks like. And if you're also in a space that's a closet or, you know, your car, because that's the only quiet space because of your kids, like, I understand and I welcome it. (laughs) Yeah, I I think more transparency in the way that we show up with each other, uh, more brave conversations uh, where we look at the fears that come up when we talk about race. Uh, and we we're able to dig into what does it look like to move past just this conversation of race into how do we 
continue to live together in a world where race is not the reason why someone doesn't get to have access to something. So I'm curious, these have been incredibly challenging times to keep going at this work. And I'm just curious, like, what's kept you going? Mm, This might sound a bit selfish, but to be fully transparent is I have a soon-to-be 23-year-old, a soon-to-be 20-year-old, and I have a newly 18-year-old who are all looking for opportunities to explore life on their own. And I'm scared as heck that they could have their own story of homelessness as adults. They've already had their story of homelessness as children. And I'm scared as heck that they could fall into that pipeline, whether it be on their own or with their own children. And I know that there's so many others who can share that same fear. I know many people who have worked their entire lives who have never owned a piece of land and now they're in their 60s and they're experiencing homelessness. And I'm scared as heck that that would be a part of my children's story again. So I keep showing up. Yeah. I just have to pause and soak that in because I know your children and I know how beautiful and talented um, and smart they are. And I also know that like this is a harsh world. And we are not setting up people to succeed despite how brilliant and talented and smart they are. Yeah. So I just want to create space because I know that fear is real. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. These have been some times we're living through something. Yeah. (laughs) This has been crazy. Um, when people ask me how I'm doing, I often just want to be like, "Ugh, hmm. that's how I'm doing. I am not digging being disconnected from people. <laughs> like it's hard to stay really present in the work when I'm not talking with folks with lived experience and I'm not talking to the outreach workers and the case managers and the people who are on the front lines doing this work. And I sit in my garage on my Zooms and my conference calls and 6 p.m. rolls around and I'm like, what did I just do for 10 hours? What? I have no idea. It's like a blur. Um, I get that foggy brain. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's been an interesting time. I'm, I mean, the thing for me, it's been really amazing to watch the protests and the uprising because it feels like, yeah, that's where we belong. We belong in the streets because this is so not right. And until we get loud and, Mm. you know, very public about all the injustice, I don't know how we create the change at the level we want to. Yeah. How is it that you continue to show up in this after sitting in the garage for 10 hours in the foggy brain and having your own brilliant family here who I know is very fortunate to have you and you having to divide your time and your space with government issues and funding allocations and reading through stuff and talking through stuff. Like what, what brings you constantly showing up to the work? Yeah, one of my colleagues posted this thing on Facebook that I loved that was like, rest is part of the revolution. <laughs> I was like, 
Yes. Yes. Rest is part of the revolution. I've had to learn self-care. It's funny. I feel like every single day I have to learn self-care again. Like I felt like I knew what balance and self-care looked like before the pandemic. And it's totally different now because my family does have different needs. And also like the work is draining and not sustaining in the same way it was before because I'm not inspired in the same way. You know, some weeks I feel like I do it okay. You know, whether that's, you know, ending work at 3 p.m. on a Friday to take my kids to the beach and get some sunshine. But then like when it was super smoky, I was terrible at self-care and, you know, really getting the hardcore foggy brain Mm. and not being able to show up for my family the way I wanted to. So, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the smoke because we are living through some really challenging times and. You know, there's the pandemic that showed up. There's the the uprising, the protest, and then the fires. Don't forget the earthquake. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Los Angeles. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Felt like the world was trying to say something, too. I heard the rumbling much more uh, longer and louder before I felt any shakes. I'm like, the world is trying to say something. I don't know if anyone was able to translate that, but... (laughs) I think it's get it together. Get it together, people. Or I'll shake you up. Yep. (laughs) This podcast has done so many marvelous things. I've been able to talk with folks where they're like asking, what's next? What's next for the podcast? And they'll say things like, Lorraine, you're in my kitchen today. And I'm like, wow, how is that possible? I was like in like four Zoom calls today. I didn't know I had time to make it to your kitchen. Uh, I wanted to know, Molly, what has been your favorite part of the podcast you know for me this like to be able to approach the issue of homelessness and to not approach it from a purely like policy academic stance has been really powerful and to get to hear personal stories and get to you know the poetry and the songs that we've incorporated in are really important. And it's not just important from a like, yeah, that's more enjoyable than listening to an academic talk about, you know, whatever, rising rents. But also because, again, like I feel like that is part of the way that white supremacy shows up in the work is that we make it very like an antiseptic. We make it so not personal and not really about human beings and their lives We spend a lot of time talking about like data and outcomes, which I totally believe in collecting data because you can learn some really important things from the data. But there's also something really like this very sort of capitalist approach to this obsession with collecting data and outcomes that like people's lives can be drilled down into a few numbers that tell you whether you've helped somebody or you haven't helped somebody. Um, so I've been, for me, it's been very freeing to like break free of that very antiseptic approach to this really complicated issue, um, and look at it in a more holistic way. Yeah. I love that because being in the world of lived experience, a question was asked to me was, what do we do for those who are Uh, like far removed and disconnected and aren't impacted by homelessness. Like they don't even see this as a possibility of what could happen to them. For a minute I was stumped and I'm like, I don't know because I've never had the privilege of being far removed. But then later, like three o'clock in the morning, I'm 
waking up to the thought of duh listen to the podcast <laughs> so i immediately uh got to the social media platform was like hey if you know anyone or if you are that someone that's far removed and you have no idea what it's like to um interact with the struggle of homelessness listen to the podcast so i think that has been my favorite part of the podcast and knowing that people who have never even thought about it can listen in and emotionally also conversationally and um relationally they could like bring people into let's start these conversations and i i do hope that for those that don't find it easy to have these conversations with their friends who aren't really close to the subject could just like pull up an episode around their friends and say hey well what do you think about this and be the invite to a conversation that they normally wouldn't have talked about. Yeah, and I'm really grateful because some of those listeners sent in some questions that we're going to try and tackle today. So let's cut to our first question. Hi, this is Tanya White. I've got a question. How does the work for housing justice connect and intersect with the systemic inequalities that are now in sharper focus because of the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests? Wow, Tanya, thank you for your question. Um, And I've actually been thinking a lot about this because when I started this work, I think I thought that homelessness was this problem that we needed to solve. Like you've got this problem, you've got a bunch of people, they don't have homes. We need to solve that problem about people not having homes. And now, you know, it's been over 15 years and obviously the world's changed quite a bit. And now I understand that homelessness isn't a problem. Homelessness is a symptom. Um, And by thinking that it was this problem that we had to solve, it actually prevented us from doing the much more important work. Not that it's not important to help people get a housing choice voucher or get a permanent supportive housing unit or rapid rehousing assistance. Like these are all important interventions, but we can do that all day long. (laughs) And we're still going to have thousands of people falling into homelessness because we haven't dealt with racism, white supremacy, income inequality, the history of this country, um, the fact that land is stolen. You know, I mean, I just feel like we have this very deep and profound history that shows up in our work every day and we were putting blinders on. And I'm trying to figure out, like, how do we remove the blinders and not go crazy because it's really big and it's really hard. But, like, how do we lift those blinders and start working in a different way where we don't think, you know, it's not an equation of if I have this many housing vouchers, homelessness is going to be solved. It just doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And my thought is referring back to the summit. And how those conversations were brought up in the summit from looking at how others are tackling the homeless crisis in other areas. This transformational engagement that could help us in the way that we're addressing the root issues of what brings us to what we see now as the homeless crisis. And the constant connection and collaboration and partnership of those that are experiencing it those that are working to provide solutions and those that are in charge of the resources that's 
being allocated to say, let's give answers to this. I'm learning so much about how we want to shift blame on folks and how is that helping us with addressing these things? I hear a lot about how, well, this person should be doing this. This organization should be doing this, this and this and this and this. So I, I do see for myself in this work when I think about how racism is showing up, how uh, dismantling it is showing up, how the housing crisis is showing up. I, I constantly refer back to what is the conversations that I'm having with myself that allows for me to confront how I interact and engage with people. Because I think that is where it all starts, where the roots of things show up. And I hear a lot of people in the work talking about solutions, solutions, solutions. And the person you're talking to, you're treating them like crap. And I think if we start looking at how we treat each other, then we'll show up different with the way that we allocate resources. Because if I'm treating you well, I definitely don't want to walk past you when I know I got a bag of oranges and you don't have any. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, I feel like every question, I'm like, and that is how white supremacy shows up in the work. But I'm, I'm going to say it one more time, and hopefully our listeners will not be like, oh my God, that girl's a broken record. But I just feel like this idea that like, oh, and we used to say this all the time. Like people like me, I said this. I shouldn't even be like those people. I said this. We know how to end homelessness. It's just a matter of the resources. I have literally, I have said that numerous times in my career. And like, we don't know how to end homelessness because we weren't looking at what was really causing homelessness. And we weren't looking at the people who were impacted, talking to them about what's happened in your life. What really, you know, what brought you here? What do you think you need? There was just a level of pretentiousness that I think really actually made our work a lot less effective, unfortunately. I also just want to say, like, I have so much respect for Black Lives Matter. Like, how amazing that, you know, a very grassroots organization without a lot of resources, mm. you know, set us up for this moment in May. There were years leading up to that moment and sort of opening people's minds to, first of all, that they were police killings, you know, what was really happening and just sort of like set us up and got people ready to, you know, open up their minds and look at what was really happening, um, which I just think is incredible. And I just have like so much respect. And also, like, I'm really excited about what the defund movement means. Like, I feel like I have a lot to learn about, you know, what does it mean to defund, both in terms of like, I am a policymaker who like deals with budgets a lot. Um, so what does it mean in terms of money? But what does it mean in terms of like how we approach crisis in a different way? I think that's what's most exciting is like, well, maybe there's a totally different way to address crises in people's lives that could look very, very different and have very different outcomes. Yeah, I, I think back to the fetal, right? There's this baby who comes into this world and then they're impacted, they're impacted by mom's perspective, dad's perspective, you know, the immediate environment around them. 
And then it starts to shape the who they are, how they see themselves in the world. And then we become these people with our own perceptions and judgments and things like that. And then there's opportunities for privilege. And there's also opportunities where one is able to navigate the streets. You know, there's there's different ways of, of looking at what we've been privileged in. And then there's the hurts and the harms that people encounter that creates fear. And then when we're in that fear space, we do what we need to to survive. And I I like to take a look at communities that have been, they haven't been invested in for years, right? And so when you want to take a look at dismantling racism and how it's impacting like the communities of color and looking at the years that have accumulated for people who haven't been invested in, for their community that has not been invested in, and how you could look at them and say, well, something's wrong with them because they're committing crimes and they're robbing and they're causing harm to people. But when they were that small fido, they just wanted to experience love. They just wanted to experience acceptance. And then harm showed up. And then survival. And and so if we really start to take a look at how do we invest in the basics of humanity, then we can start to take a look at how people, whether whatever community they live in, can be able to have access to a way where their minds are able to think through how do I be a productive member of society and not have to take from someone else or not have to cause harm to someone else. But I get to just be still that loving little, you know, heart soul that was a fetal once and just looking for love. And how do we cultivate that? How do we make that be the foundation in people caring for people? Yeah. Well, believing that if we invest in people, you know, they'll invest back in the community. You know, I mean, it's faith. You know, it's like, how do you want to approach the world and other human beings? And what do you want to believe that they're capable of if you actually invest in them? Yeah. Let me just jump in here. Go, Bill. As a new dad, having a son has been extremely transformational in just seeing and acknowledging that there are people who need love and need guidance and have less understanding of the world than you do and have less faculties and resources at their disposal and just coming out of a place of trying to make the world better is extremely important and like what you were saying about investing in people um i think that we have seen not only that it's important to invest in people but i think that we have seen that we cannot isolate ourselves from the consequences of disinvesting in people. And I think that the past few months have shown us that we have systems that are designed in a way that not only hurts and causes ill effects upon the people who are disfortunate in the system, but that, for instance, a system where millions of people can't go to the doctor or don't have health insurance when we're all trying to stop the spread of a communicable disease or a system which was argued to be effective being a system where people's employers provide them health insurance in a world where the minute a pandemic hits, tens of millions of people are laid off. It doesn't make any sense from a system design perspective. And so I hope that if we can take anything away from the experiences that we need 
to invest in each other, whether we get paid back or not is irrelevant, that even just not investing in each other hurts all of us in the long run. I had this experience a couple of years ago where I was hosting a political fundraiser for a candidate. We were trying to get elected to Congress. And it it just so happened that this fundraiser was in the backyard of some friends of mine. And there were a lot of other parents who showed up at the fundraiser. So I got up to introduce this candidate. And I, I looked out at my community of parents uh, or fellow parents. And I realized I was like, you know, we spend money on piano lessons and gymnastics and horse riding lessons. And like we spend all this money on our children because we love our children, but also because we believe that if we invest in helping them develop these talents and skills, it'll make their lives better as adults. And I was like, you know what's going to make their lives better as adults? If we have some policymakers who actually believe in climate change, and if we have policymakers who believe in healthcare, and we have policymakers who believe in a right to housing, like this is what's going to make the future for my kids better. Um, And it's not that, you know, I get it, like, we're all going to obviously continue to do everything we can to have our help our kids have a well rounded childhood. But when we're thinking about, you know, why we're doing this, maybe we should think about also putting the same time and energy into helping create a world that's being shaped by people who are going to actually fix some of these problems. I agree. And as Lorraine expressed earlier, that even with all the love and attention that she has provided for her children, that she still is terrified for the prospects of them someday falling into this poorly designed system. And I think it's very easy to other people who fall into homelessness and say, well, like that couldn't happen to me. That happens to people who make mistakes or do whatever. But the thing that really struck me about Uh, listening to all the personal stories in this season of the show that started every episode was how frequently I could see the same set of, frankly, shitty circumstances happening to me and that I could end up in the same or similar place and how easy it is when you're not facing calamity to think that it can never happen to you. So you don't need to worry about the fact that it can happen to other people. And if it does happen to you, there's no net there to catch you. Yeah, well, the world is shaking things up. And if your home is swallowed into a pothole (laughs) and (laughs) you're standing on the side of it, then you're trying to figure out what do I do next? Unless you're one of those who have a jet to fly to your other home. And so I think taking a look at how... That percentage of folks who get the tax breaks and get all the privilege based on the fact that they've figured out the capitalism way, Uh, either they could teach others, I don't know, or find it in themselves to um, to say, you know, this is not right and I want to do something different. Yeah, I struggle a little bit. Because on the one hand, I have the same experience that you have, Bill, where I listen to people's stories and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I was in a similar circumstance or that I can easily see that happening to me. You know, if I got a chronic disease, my family, you know, could end up homeless or, you know, if other you know, things happened, it could happen to me. 
So on the one hand, there's the argument of like homelessness can happen to anybody. But then there's the other side of the issue, which is that, you know, you're much more likely to experience homelessness if you're black or you're Native American um, or if your family, you know, if you grew up in extreme poverty, you know, like there's these certain things that I want to also acknowledge. Yes, homelessness can happen to anybody. It could certainly happen to me. But I also have a lot of privilege and I want to acknowledge that and acknowledge that we need to do this not just because it could happen to anybody, um, but because we actually owe it to certain groups of people who have experienced homelessness at much higher rates than other groups. That we have a, we have a debt to pay, um, and we need to start paying on that debt. Powerful. How do we even get folks that don't see that they are a part of paying the debt to see for themselves that they too could be the answer to the solution and just the simple act of noticing that I too can take a part in this debt to be paid. Yeah. We got a lot of work ahead of us. Um, and I actually think we have a really good question that sets us up well to talk a little more about how to approach that. So let's go to our next question. What has always been overwhelming about working to end homelessness is that homelessness is a symptom of so many other issues. Homelessness sits at the intersection of systemic inequalities that are core to the creation of our country and critical to maintaining power for the people and institutions with all of the resources. This truth has made it easy to spin our wheels while patting ourselves on the back. We house so many people every day, every month, every year. And every day, every month, every year, the number of people experiencing homelessness increases. It is not enough. It is not enough to get really good at getting people into housing. It is not enough to build permanent supportive housing better, cheaper, faster. None of this will ever be enough. We will not house, serve, or build our way out of this. What can we do? We have to organize. We have to hold ourselves accountable to addressing and dismantling the systems that feed homelessness and housing instability. But who can do this work? And what mix of people would it take to really execute meaningful change? So much work is being done without clients and activists at the table in any meaningful way. But it would take more than activists and people with lived experience to articulate and execute radical change. My questions for myself right now are, what does dismantling inequality really look like? What levers do I have? If I knew the path forward, would I be brave enough to take it? How do we get enough people brave enough? And where are the big ideas? So, Lorray, so Whitney posed that so beautifully. Where are the big ideas and how do we get brave enough? What do you think? Okay, this is something that I do with my son, Royalty, and we do this reimagining, right? So we could have a day where we've ran into a lot of challenges and things were really hard. And then we put into practice this way of reimagining. If today was a great day, what would have had to be different? Like, how would your teacher have responded to this? Or how would your classmate have treated you during this type of conversation and so I want to play with the idea with tapping into our childhood tapping into the wisdom of our children so there was this young girl she's newly seven and she says dad I don't understand every time I call you you're always working 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 
Now, the dad is a HVAC technician, which means, you know, he's always answering to calls to make sure that people are in the comfort of their homes. And um, she says, and your house is so small. It makes no sense that you're always working and your house is so small. Why don't you just go and work at In-N-Out? They always have a long line, which means they're making a lot of money. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this child is brilliant. She would think that because of a franchise has lots of customers always that the people that are working there are making a lot of money. And I'm like, what if the world worked like that? It's like flipping it to like the way that children are able to. She's like, it makes no sense. You're always working. Your house is small. And this place over here always has customers. And if you just work there for a few hours, you'll be rich. (laughs) And I'm like, how do we get this type of thinking into the seats of people who are like sitting around saying, this is how much hourly wage should be. This is how much it should cost to live in this space. Like, that's the big idea. The big idea was what would it look like if I worked a full day and I was able to go to a space and call this space my comfort place where I get to sit and rest and be at peace and I don't have to worry about not ever seeing my children because I'm constantly working to make sure that this place is still available. Just reimagine reimagine what would it look like to have like ease and comfort in life and and how could we create that? For ourselves and for others. Yeah, I love the idea of approaching this from reimagining. Because there is reimagining, like, at the grand scale of, like, how do we want our country to work? Like, we want people to be rewarded for working hard and to have enough money where they can live in a decent home, which, like, we actually had in this country not that long ago. Um, Remember that thing called the middle class? Um, (laughs) used to have that so maybe inequality is a problem america um you know and maybe racism is a problem because you should be able to you know work hard regardless of what the color of your skin is and still be able to afford a place to live so like there's the reimagining at that like grand scale of how we want things to work differently in our country but i'm also thinking about like how do i want to reimagine how my days at work look Like, what do I want my day to look like to help us get to that? And I think about, like, Whitney talking about, like, why aren't we at tables with people with lived experience and activists? Because that's not who's talking to me in my daily work most of the time. That's not who's at the table. You know, and how do we have these discussions that aren't the constant sort of scarcity discussions about, like... Well, if we fund rental assistance for people, we can't fund homelessness prevention. And if we want to fund people to do in-reach in the jail, we can't fund employment services. You know, which is what most of my days look like, is like, how am I going to rob some critical service that somebody needs to pay for some other critical service? You know, and how do... I start getting to come to work and talking about like a right to housing, you know, and that there's going to be rental assistance for people no matter what, because that's the way our our country should work. I want to approach work in a different way and reimagine this work looking differently. And even from a basic level of like, 
how do I reimagine my workspaces to be safe spaces for people where people can bring their whole selves and they can talk about what their family has experienced and use that to inform the solutions we're trying to make happen. Mm-hmm. That's valuable stuff. I think that there's also, though, a systemic approach and mindset that needs to change where so often we do face budgetary shortfalls in government and uh, the amount of goodwill that can be dried up at some point for what is deemed to be subsidizing these programs of you know people who need genuinely need help um but we look at something like what loray was describing as well at in and out which is a private company uh but even a publicly traded company like walmart where we have multi-billion dollar profitable companies that are employing people at 40 hours a week that are not able to then pay for a place to live and pay for food to the point where we have to, as a community, come in and subsidize with food stamps and with Section 8 vouchers to make up the difference for somebody who is gainfully employed. And like that's, the chorus always is, do something, get a job, but people have jobs and cannot live. And so we need to reframe that existing as us actively subsidizing profitable corporations and their shareholders rather than diverting that money to people who need it. We're allowing somebody who's already rich and making lots of money to just make more money and we're making up the difference. Not to mention the fact that most of their profits are also coming from people spending their food stamps at Walmart often after they get off work to buy their food. It's just a total reframing of the concept of who is really being subsidized here and where our money is really going. Yeah, I mean, sometimes these policy issues are so circular and it can be so frustrating. Like there's a program in L.A. to help people get tickets expunged um, so that they won't have this on their record because they have a misdemeanor or felony or an infraction where they owe money, um, which you can end up in jail if you don't pay a fine from an infraction. You know, and at the same time, like we're paying for police to go out (laughs) You know, and hand out these tickets, you know, like we're paying both sides of this issue. And I feel like it's the same thing at a much larger level where like, you know, we're using taxpayer money to make these companies profitable and then they're not paying their workers enough money so that their workers need benefits that we're paying for at the same time. It's just this crazy circle. And sometimes I think you just have to step back Mm -hmm. and then figure out, okay. How do we redesign? How do we reimagine? Yeah. To use your word, Lore. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about how I was doing some research and how, in the long run, Section 8 vouchers spend more on keeping people housed who have felt like they cannot have any other option to the way that they would be housed than it would cost to support someone to have a mortgage yeah and so quickly because of the way everything has been set up with the high surveillance and and like we're waiting for you to fall through and so that we could take your voucher or you know give you a a a red flag on what you need to be doing because we are granting you this voucher uh, that person could still end up homeless because they don't own it which 
yeah, and I'm starting to wonder is like the owning of things is what makes the equitable way of living because there's a, a lot of other models that are being put into practice that we could learn from. There's non-traditional housing. I know a lot of people are like getting really frustrated because they have their own RV and they're like, I keep racking up all these tickets, but I do not want to be responsible to living a certain kind of way because of a property management company and the way that they want us to do things. So let's, yeah, let's reimagine what non-traditional ways of living looks like. Let's reimagine what if a person chooses to transition out of this system where they're constantly having to meet the needs to stay on this benefit and they're looking to transition, like how do we really support that? That doesn't create strings attached to where uh, right now, like my for myself, I'm a part of the Family Self-Sufficiency Program and it still requires that no one who's a part of the home is receiving any government assistance. But yet and still I have these teenagers who are looking to experience life on their own. And if I say to them, go out, experience life on your own. And in a certain amount of time, because of the way that I'm being able to be assisted in my living, I'll have to downgrade. So then when life does not work well for you, either you'll all be trying to cram into my one bedroom place with me or who knows what's next for you. Like, Yeah, I think a lot of people who don't have personal experience with the Section 8 program or the Housing Choice Voucher program, as it's now called, don't understand the crazy regulations associated with that program many of which are really based in this sort of deeply racist history of like, God forbid we give you assistance if you haven't proved that you deserve it because you're jumping through a thousand hoops. And one of the many regulations is this obsession um, with household size and how many bedrooms you're allowed to have based on your household size. Um, so if your you know, son and daughter move out, you have to move to a different apartment. And you're right, you know, like then, unlike somebody who has their own home and their home stays the same size, like where do they come back to um, if they're not able to support themselves when they're out there? And I feel like that's one of, I don't know, maybe 500 crazy rules that are right? a part of the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Don't get a new iron. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like that's an inside joke that people aren't going to understand. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is because there's a, there's a way that people have experienced living in these certain areas where they have to like meet these requirements and everything you do is like really highly surveillance. And if you have enough money to buy that new iron, then we're going to be taking a look at like, what are you doing? We need to increase your rent. Like something yeah, certify your income because you've bought a new iron, which must mean that your income's gone up and we need to do a recertification. Or do you have someone else in your home that's helping yeah. you pay things? Oh, let's add them and let's make your rent higher because you have another person with another income in the home. Like it's all kind of stuff connected to it. Yeah. It gives you a lot of brain damage. <laughs> I mean, and I feel like the brain damage is like the best part because it can also like just be so disheartening. All yeah. the crazy regulations. Yeah. So we actually have a question all about ownership, um, which I think is actually a great transition. Yes. So let's hear that question. This is Marion Wellington from Tech Equity Collaborative. 
One thing that I've been thinking about in terms of housing justice is what it means to think of housing as a human right and need in direct opposition to the concept of housing as private property. To me, considering housing as owning land, whether homeowner or landlord, works directly against the idea that we as interconnected people all need shelter and space to call home. It's especially complicated considering that the land we live on is stolen from indigenous people in the first place. I like to imagine a world in which we can all live on and in land that we also don't claim for ourselves. How can we build home that feels personal and secure in communities that can freely exchange resources and care? Yeah, this land ownership piece brings me to think about the co-op model, um, which is something that I'm learning about. When I was starting to learn about it, I was the one in the room in tears because I was just thinking about what is it like for a child to grow up in a community where everybody cares about everybody? No one goes without food. No one goes without clothes. No one goes without uh, housing. It's just this way where everyone gets to contribute based on their skills, gifts, and talents, and that just takes care of everybody. So the co-op model, uh, a woman, she shared with us that she grew up in this space where it was just so loving and welcoming from everybody. And because it was just so far away from what you would call uh, civilization, uh, (laughs) capitalism, she decided to move away with her family. And she got to experience the living in Los Angeles. And she was like, oh, my goodness, this is crazy. Like, it's so hard to be able to afford food and live and try and work in a place where there's no what she said, there's no democracy in the workplace. So her voice meant nothing in that workplace. And so she got to see the contrast and to think back to how she shared that if at any moment she goes back to this space where she grew up that her and her family will be open to a home. And it blew my mind, like, wow, what if I could just go anywhere? And they were like, hey, Lorraine has how many children were there? Okay, let's all come together as a community. We're going to get her housed right here. And how long will you be here? About six months? Okay, we'll work it out. What if, with the big idea, we moved into a space of, looking at how much land is available. I know there's talk about land trusts right now. There's talk about the way that there's an organization who's like secured accessory dwelling units, which is like back home spaces of others through the co-op model where they've said, okay, for 10 years, we're going to secure this space. So whoever comes will be able to live in this space. And then I think about the question of like, how is this, where I get to make it personal and it feels secure and still um, make it available for others who could come in. So it's really interesting because I feel like there is a very mixed history about like shared ownership of land. I come from a certain history of like crazy white people in their communes in the 70s and 80s that did not go so well for most of them. I hope out there there's some nice communes with some good models, but I definitely came from like the crazy white. I didn't live on a commune, but I certainly knew a lot of the crazy white people communes that were pretty didn't work out so well. But I also feel like there's so many ways to approach this differently than the way we do. I mean, I was really blown away when I went to Europe and realized that in Europe, in most of the cities, the vast majority of land is owned by the government. 
So, you know, you go to a city like Helsinki in Finland and over 70 percent of the land is owned by the government and developers lease that land to develop it. And in exchange, they have to provide public housing in the buildings they develop in addition to the market rate housing that they get to make money on. You know, like there's so many different ways to go about this. And public housing was obviously, you know, a really important tool in this country to have publicly owned land that we had housing on. And we screwed up our approach to public housing. But the idea of publicly owned land with housing on it is not actually a bad idea. There are, you know, and also there's some public housing that's actually still very nice. Um, You know, there's just many different ways to go about this. And then, of course, in the 1980s in this country, we got the low income housing tax credit, the most convoluted, complicated, you know, program that nobody can really explain. But it creates a lot of nonprofit ownership of land in addition to some for profit which is a little confusing. So, you know, I feel like there's a lot of different ways, in addition to community land trusts and co-ops, there's a lot of different ways to get at models of developing real estate into homes that's a lot more equitable than the vast majority of the way we make land available. This is actually something that throughout the process of this podcast has really bugged me and something about the way that we're approaching homelessness now that has made me wonder how much we're actually exacerbating the problems by the way that money is being spent. Because we're taking all these massive amounts of tax dollars and they're being funneled to private landlords. And are we just making housing prices for everybody higher and exacerbating income inequality and the gap in equity between, you know, people who were not giving, frankly, if you think about it, anything to, we're giving money to a rich person to let a person who has nothing stay in that rich person's house that we can pay until they move out. And then that rich person is going to still have that piece of property and have been paid probably slightly above market rate to even secure the privilege of letting that person live there on our tax dollar throughout the whole time. So just... Is, is it making it worse is my well, question. Well, I mean, and I do think, you know, the best investment we can make with taxpayer dollars is when we secure land to hold either publicly or in a community land trust or some model where we're actually controlling the land and ideally controlling the land in perpetuity. Because that's one of the big things is that what the low income housing tax credit created was this model of oh, you can develop this land and get these tax credits if you keep the apartments affordable for 55 years, which at first sounds like a long time, but now we have a bunch of what's called expiring covenants and a bunch of people losing their affordable housing. And then these developers have land that's, you know, they can get 100% market rate value for. And it's like, that's crazy. You know, so like, how do we actually ensure that we're using taxpayer money to secure land and secure it in perpetuity to be affordable to people. And it's not to say like, we're not overnight going to have enough land where we don't need rental assistance. But you know, how do we ensure that we're both, you know, securing land at the same time that we're funding rental assistance and ideally getting to a point where we're putting more money into securing land? Because it is this system where you're like, wait, how did that work? How much did we pay that landlord? And then they still got to evict that person and that person became homeless? Did that really make sense? 
There's a lot of big ideas that could be brought from this conversation. And uh, one thing that still like I get caught up in the chest with is the brave enough to do it. Like we could look ourselves in the mirror and know what's being faced for the day and ask myself, what do I need to do to be brave enough to bring this issue to this conversation with knowing that the people in this conversation of today are able to make some changes and how do I stick to when they bring up uh, well, you know, uh, well, we're doing this and we're doing that. And so they try to politically stray away from what you brought to their attention and your braveness that's been my experience is like I constantly have to put on the brave pants to show up in spaces where um, the ideas that I may bring may not be trusted very well. One, because I'm a woman. Two, because I'm black. Three, because I lived in poverty. <laughs> you know, like all these other factors that play a role. But then there's other people who are very influential. But to be brave, to say, no, this is the right thing. And I don't even know if we have to look at right or wrong type thing, but just to be brave enough to keep pulling at those levers to make the shift based on these new ways and big ideas. My experience is what makes a difference in helping me be brave is who is holding me accountable. Because it's very easy to do this work and allow the, I don't want to say the wrong people to hold you accountable, but people who don't care about the root causes of homelessness. There's a lot of people out there who don't want to look at white supremacy and income inequality and these bigger issues. And they tend to focus on, it's a numbers game. How many shelter beds do we have? How many safe parking spaces do we have? How many people, what's the homeless count this year? Well, who cares what the homeless count is if we know that 50,000 people are going to fall into homelessness next year? Like, what good is it? And yet I feel like whether it's the media, whether it's politicians, whether it's business groups, there's a lot of people who try and hold the folks doing this work accountable to the wrong measures. And like, if we're going to be brave, we need people like you, Lorraine, holding me accountable. You know, and we need thousands of you holding the folks who are leading this work accountable. And I just have to say, I feel like the balance is off right now in terms of I know I personally, but I think a lot of people working in the field feel a lot of pressure right now and a lot of pressure to deliver the wrong things, Mm. to not deliver the much deeper, much more systemic solutions. So that is a good transition to what comes next. What's coming next for you, Lorraine? Always it's supporting things that are going on with my children. And I want to give a quick, what do they call those, like a blurb. So royalty is now learning how to take his comical art So he does these comics to express his emotions. And now he's exploring what it's like to take that comic strip that he's drawn to uh, record it and to do voiceovers over it. 
And my daughter Destiny is helping him with like making it into an actual video. And I'm super excited because I always knew that the family is very talented. And I always told them like, if we work together, there will be no stopping us. And, and to see that they're bringing their projects together is like, mom is super excited, right? To see Melvin expand and how his reach is starting to be shared with the world at large. So he's coming from a place of noticing that a lot of his music was from his expression of his hurt and his harm that has been uh, accumulated over the years to now he's like in this really mature place. And it's really nice to see what's coming out of this mature place that he's in. And Damari is still in the army doing what he is uh, very devoted to doing and dedicated to doing for our country. And he's been talking about looking into options for buying a home. So I'm really hoping that that is something that is in his future. And for myself, uh, I've been enjoying how this podcast has opened up for me to be able to really express how important it is to have lived experience at the table and to see how their voice could shape programs and services and doing this consulting work with Bill and sitting with folks who are like in the transition of interim housing and seeing folks who are like really content with the fact that they finally got housed and noticing how people's lives have changed throughout that time and how I'm the one to like ask them, have you ever done any advocacy? And they're like, Hmm, advocacy. And I'm like, yes, let's now start take a look at how advocacy is a healing, liberating and informing practice that will allow for the way that we're experiencing the housing crisis to shift. And I'm excited because that's what I set Molly down. I was like, I want to create opportunities for people with lived experience. And this is what has come of it. So I have a question for you. And I hope that I will be able to articulate this the way I want to. So I just, there's this book that, you know, everybody's on their anti-racist reading list that Ibram Kendi wrote called Stamped from the Beginning. It's a history of racist ideas. And in it, he talks a lot about uplift suasion, which is this idea that for a long time, there was this belief that if black people presented themselves in the world in a certain way, we would overcome racist ideas. Because if we showed that like black people went to college and they were professionals and they owned homes and they show up in the community in all these ways, like racism will go away because people will see that that's, you know, you can be a black person and be professional and rich and whatever. Um, you know, and of course, we have now had, you know, Barack Obama as our president, the ultimate example of accomplishment. And we have possibly the most racist president and like period of history in decades that we're living through right now. So I think we can all say uplift suasion did not work. And Ibram Kendi proves that beautifully in his book. But, you know, I have struggled a little bit when I think back on, you know, my work with advocates and people with lived experience. You know, I believe so deeply in like speaking truth to power and that truth has to be spoken by the people who lived it. But I also feel like some of what happens with advocates with lived experience 
Sometimes it feels a little bit like we parade people in front of white audiences to show like, oh, homelessness isn't what you think. Look at this lovely person and everything they overcame and all the good in the world. And like reading the Kendi book, I was like, oh, my God, have I been participating in uplift suasion around homelessness by like thinking that if we just showed people that like homelessness isn't what you think, these ideas would go away. And I'm just curious because you've been in front of a lot of audiences. I greatly appreciate it because it is something that I've thought about many times when I've been given like the platform. Uh, I was a part of the Homeless Initiative Conference and I was most definitely present to the fact that I did not get there because Lorraine did everything right as a black woman. It needs the support. It is, what is the support? What are the scaffolding that hold people up to navigate the world due to their life experience? I've been hearing a lot of people talk about, Lorraine, well, you know, you're famous now. Oh, you're doing everything. You're so popular. And I say, what does that mean? Because if my son could go off to Humboldt and then he's calling me and he's like, Mom, I'm I'm in need of $1,200 to stay in college just so that I could stay in my housing in college. And I'm like, dude, that's paying rent double time. Mom doesn't have that. So let's consider you coming home and look at other options. Like the ideas that people can be presented as, oh, well, you know, if this person's life worked well, then we could get rid of the idea that, you know, the racism or poverty, it doesn't work. We need to place the ideas like, who am I scaffolding? How much am I putting in to scaffold this person? Um, So if you know anyone that seems to be doing really well, you might want to get real humble and ask them, like, what do you need? And, And for people that get that question, be brave and bold enough to be like, shit, I need help with getting this kid through college because they're too damn smart to not go. But they're afraid that they won't have the support that they need to be able to, like, successfully make it through. You know, in talking about why you do the work, you said because of the disparities going back to when they said slavery was over and there was no structure in place to hold people, to house people. And so I show up here in this way because people need someone to say, hey, I support you in this. Listening back on that from the first episode, I was like... We need to redefine support. Like we need to figure out how do we support people in a much deeper way where we really believe, you know, it goes back to that question about like believing and investing in people, like believing that by like investing deeply in your ability to become a homeowner, to send your son to college, that's what we need to be working towards. And we keep approaching homelessness, you know, in this way where we're just barely letting folks get by. If you're one of the very lucky ones who gets help when you're on the street, because most people don't, if you're one of the very lucky ones, let's say you're the one in four people who gets Section 8 when you qualify for it, you get it, and then you're still living in extreme poverty without enough money for the most basic aspects of life. 
And we need to, you know, we need to reimagine. I'm just going to keep going back to reimagine. Yeah. Because that's where we need to do this in a different way. And I think like in thinking about myself and what comes next, I just keep going to like, I need to go to a place of deep humility. You know, when I think back to who I was 15 years ago, like I'm proud of my little self for like wanting to do good in the world. But I also had a level of arrogance around what it would take to do this work that I thought I knew the solutions, that the solutions were simple. And I think I'm just getting to a place in my career where it's like, uh, no, I need to approach this with a lot more humility. There are a lot of takeaways that say, yes, it is not going to be as easy as we had originally imagined it would be to solve these problems. But I think that we also, as strange as it may seem to do so, I think we need to take hope in the opportunities for self-reflection and for the realization for more people and as many people as possible to realize that being engaged with these things and doing what we can, whether through activism or making sure that people vote, that it does matter. And if the last, you know, six months and four years have taught us anything is that there are genuine consequences for elections, that the only way that we can scale solutions to the level that they need to be and without the means test or the whims of religious organizations or whatever to decide who does and does not deserve our help, the only mechanism that we have to do that is the government. And when we realize that the tool for the people who would keep us down and would prevent people from lifting themselves up is right now to just squirt ink in the water and confuse people. And I hear so many people say, well, I don't, you know, you don't really know who to believe and that none of this matters. If the past period of time of tragedy has taught us anything is that it does matter and that you can do something and that you can make a difference. The one positive takeaway from all of these terrible things that we've seen this year is that more people realize that they do have a voice and they can do something and can make a difference. Well, and I do think, I mean, that's the, that's the lesson is like, you know, it's important to do the self work and it's important to figure out how to live your life in a way with authenticity. But the real change, you know, happens at a government level, happens at a policy level. And that is where the really profound change happens. And like, we've got to be fighting for that. And I really like I really want to honor because I, I value so much. There's so many like amazing, cool, small groups who've started to address homelessness. And it's great because I do think like the hyper local work is really important. But we've got to do that hyper local work. And we've got to work on the big policy change, too, because it's not going to work if we only approach homelessness from this tactile local level and don't really change the fundamental rights and entitlements in this country, which we know can be changed with the right leaders. Yeah. So is this by for now? And then what? <laughs> this is by for now. 
Um, we will see what happens. I I am a hundred percent confident, Lorray, that you and I are going to continue to work together. And we do have, where I know we're going to do a, a workshop at the Scamp Conference coming up soon. Given how long it takes us to edit, probably that'll have be done by the time this episode airs. Um, but I know that we will find ways to continue to work together, and hopefully there'll be a lot more spaces where these conversations can continue. Yeah. What now for you, Bill? Well, we actually just got the keys to our first house yesterday. So I yeah, I have a seven month old now crawling and rolling all over a wide open house that desperately needs cleaning and painting in every room, and that is going to take up at least the next six weeks of all of my free time and probably years into the future. Congratulations on the both. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but this work is something that never really leaves my thoughts just aside from, you know, the realization that I already have of the structural change that is needed. The business of it is being conducted in my kitchen every day. So yeah, my <laughs> husband's gotten a lot more familiar with my work since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've sat in on many meetings that I never imagined I would be. Uh, a part of so my husband's like you have a lot of really tense phone calls yep yeah <laughs> you know Melvin had that same observation he was like mom this is this is what you do and I'm like yeah this is <laughs> and one time he was like in tears he was like I never knew what was like happening behind the scenes I was like yep this this is what I do yeah I often my my wife gets off of calls and then debriefs with me and tells me like um so this person this and I can't believe this and this and that and can you get me a water and I asked her I asked her I'm like can I start billing the county as admin support for you because like I have a new part-time job now so we got our work cut out for us yeah why don't you help us uh what are we going out on today So this piece, I Can't Breathe by Too Hungry. Uh, Let me get that correct. Uh, He always says, Mom. So, But this is my son, and I'm very proud of the work that he's been doing to address how he could be a part of the uprising in a a nonviolent manner, although he's uh, very much impacted being a black male. And um, the song is great. I'm not the only one to say so, and I'd like for everyone else to have their uh, their opportunity to have an opinion on the song or just enjoy it for that matter. The song is uh, I Can't Breathe by Too Hungry. All lives don't matter until black lives matter, you feel me? So that's to hate me and kill me or feel me the real me i'm dangerous crazy all my folks facing dangerous went from hanging us to knees on next man these people ain't saving us innocent until proven guilty black until dead we turn death into a movement i said move bitch you get out the way you stand in front of my rights to freedom suffering and pain no shame we can play at y'all game you act like you couldn't hear when joyce Floyd screamed i can't breathe y'all breaking out of curfew we running out like runaway slaves i can't breathe every time I hear all lies matter and we bringing up the daddy all lies seem great all lies at stake I'll hold your skin you hold my place I'll see your face that's how I feel when I can't hold my race the government use a bash like a patch to go blast and harass anyone that's even close to the color of a bag for the paper of the bag rather put the toe tag like that's not her dad bitch I'm hurt but sad I can't 
breathe. But I already told you that RP AJ of your baby ain't doing good lately. Things done changed down here. Have no fear, it's time is changed. The time done came, so change is near. This ain't no whites versus blacks, this is rice for the blacks versus any fucking bite who got a problem with that. But better yet, this is whites with the blacks and the browns than anybody else that wanted just to stop now. We went from waving our signs and screaming out loud and burning it down the way our family's been burning from holding the well. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Housing Justice LA is Lorraine Cantley, Molly Reisman, Bill Lance, New Dad. Our music is provided by Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Ann English for her support and work on the CSH Speak Up program. This podcast is produced on Tongva land in Los Angeles and made possible through a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation. 